top of the news this evening is speculation concerning the real facts behind the Department of Health announcement about a radioactive spill supposed to have occurred yesterday at the state nuclear plant. You will die only to live again in a younger body. Then you can tell me if the operation was a success. I could easily kill you now, but I'm determined to have your brain. You're listening to the Really Awful Movies Podcast, a celebration of genre cinema. Hi, my name is Chris, and along with Jeff, we talk about movies that aren't really awful at all. Horror, action, kung fu, musicals, post-apocalyptic, women in prison films, and much, much more. From our downtown Toronto headquarters, here's episode 303, Wax Mask, a.k.a. Masca di Cera. Indeed, from 1997. And Chris, I gotta say, every time I hear you speak Italian, it just warms the cockles of my heart. Yeah, it's funny, funny we mentioned it's, this is a 1997 effort, but at the time it's kind of anachronistic too. Like it feels very out of place for the 90s and feels like, I don't know, you would have never guessed watching this that this would be a 90s effort. It really is in keeping with the, the types of films that this of this ilk, which, you know, riding off into the sunset by this time, the, the Italian horror scene. And oh, yeah, this well, is really like very, very 80s. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Italian horror industry was in shambles at this point. I mean, Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci were the original, uh, I guess you would say, the original director and, well, producer, although Dario Argento did produce this movie. I mean, they were way past their prime at this point. I wouldn't say way past their prime. They were past their prime. And, I mean, we'll get into the story of how this film came about and how um, Dario approached uh, Lucio to direct and why Lucio, of course, didn't direct. But um, I just want to say, if there's such a thing as a film that's near and dear to one's heart, and of course, there is such a thing. This is one of them. This is totally near and dear to my heart. This film. Oh, why do you say that? As uh, like, I came to this very late. I it was another uh, just find in the in the one of the last remaining video stores in Toronto, and I was just perusing the uh, the uh, the Italian section, and it just popped because of the 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 collab. Obviously, you can't with those two names just jumping out at you. You can't not you know visit this. But I have I have no personal history with it other than that. Well, for me, a huge personal history because, I mean, again, this was when I was getting back into horror and really getting into it hardcore. And you couldn't find your horror going to your local blockbuster or even, your, I mean, you really had to make a pilgrimage to specialty stores downtown like, uh, of course, our late lamented suspect video or um, maybe scour the, the nascent internet to try and find something. But it was uh, it was very difficult to find your horror. But we had a TV station we still have it, but they've changed their programming immensely, called Showcase. And every night at around the midnight hour, they would air a Euro, a Euro horror. And the very first one I saw, and at this point, I only knew the name Dario Argento from Reputation. I had never seen one of his films, was the Stendhal Syndrome. But the Stendhal Syndrome, unfortunately, I turned it on maybe a third of the way through. So I didn't see the whole thing until maybe a couple years later. But the very next night, I turned on the TV right at midnight. And what were they playing? What did they program? I keep wanting to say the House of Wax, but <laughs> the Wax Mask. And I'm telling you, Chris, watching this movie, it was like unwrapping a Christmas present. Having not ever seen any Euro horror before, only seeing the domestics, you know, your Freddy's, your Jason's, your Michael Myers, it, it, it opened up a new hole in my brain, which I had to fill with more and more and more Euro horror movies and more knowledge. So I credit this film with making me being one of those formative films which made me into the type of horror fan that I became. 
Well, who better to open a portal to another dimension than Lucio Fulci, really? Although Lucio Fulci's involvement in this film was quite minimal. I mean, his health was quite ailing at the time. And uh, when Dario Argento, Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci were never friends. They were considered rivals. But Fulci and Argento, I mean, the press pitted them as rivals, which, uh, and they were not friends, but which is, you know, I mean, they're both two, two directors working in the same genre in the same country. It was a small country, so why not? But when Argento sort of got wind of Fulci's declining fortunes, both personal, professional, and and health-wise. He wanted to throw his colleague a bone, and he asked him if they want, he wanted to collaborate on, up, on an updating of the House of Wax story. Oh, I was going to say, uh, luckily he didn't use the phrase bury the hatchet. It might have been misinterpreted with these two characters, <laughs> that's for sure. And they, they came together to work on this sort of un, unlikely effort. Mm-hmm. With the yep. work of many hands and directed by Sergio Stivaletti, obviously the longtime, uh, you know, effects man. So yep. what ended up happening is that they were banning about uh, how to make this film. And right away, Argento and Fulci were loggerheads because Argento wanted to make it more atmospheric. Whereas Lucio Fulci wanted to play up the gore aspect, which is, of course, par for the course for Lucio Fulci. Now, in the midst of pre-production, Fulci's health just deteriorated, deteriorated, deteriorated until the point where he was no longer able to work on the film. So I guess Argento had no interest in directing it. They brought on his uh, uh, an effects man that I believe worked for both of them, Sergio Stivaletti, who really didn't have much in the way of directing credits beforehand. And he made this film, produced by Dario Argento, dedicated to Lucio Fulci, but because, it's, because uh, of Stivaletti's background, he wanted to play to his strengths as an effects man. So this film became much more akin to what Fulci, Fulci would have done in the sense that it was much more effects and gore than the atmospheric retelling that Dario Argento wanted to do. It's so funny that this would be a point of contention between the two because as far as we're concerned, you can neither you cannot have enough of either of what they bring to the table. So it's not like uh, Argento films are found wanting in the gore department by any means, right? No, but they're nowhere near as uh, fulsome in the gore department as Fulci's. And you can't discredit Fulci's atmosphere either. I mean, just look no farther than, well, whatever, E. Vampiri or the Beyond. I mean, it's Beyond, exactly. rife, rife with atmospheres. It's just so funny. It's just really splitting airs. It's yep. so silly. But really, I, I don't know how this would have been different if you would have dialed up one and dialed back the other in terms of influence. I'm not sure. Like, what does the finished product look like more? To me, it looks more like a Fulci film. I mean, there's it's... Uh... A late period Fulci film, because you got to remember, like late period, we're talking about like Touch of Death, we're talking about Murder Rock. They're starting to really lack atmosphere. His films start getting less, a lot less atmospheric with starting with the New York Ripper. And that's considered either the beginning of his decline or like the first film, like either the, the last film of his golden period or the first film of his decline, you know, and his films are getting less and less atmospheric and they just start getting more and more gory and we we podcasted uh, touch of death in this podcast i mean was there any atmosphere in that picture it depends how you define atmosphere i mean but what a whiz bang you know intro to that one with just a just a murder right off the bat and a quite elaborate set piece as well you know the credits didn't even roll and there was some just uber gore right off the bat Mm-hmm. Well, this film, and one of the things that really uh, spoke to me when I watched it late that one night on Showcase was the fact that it was so bloody gory, and that <laughs> bloody gory, that's not meant to be a pun, yeah. but so it's definitely looked way more like a Fulci film. If I didn't see Dario Argento's production name ahead of it as produced by Dario Argento, I wouldn't have thought he had anything to do with this film. It's so weird. I mean, uh, well, I guess... 
there's the it's less hmm how, how do, should we put this like artistic with a capital a because argento always plies the trade of you have you have your your painters and your ballet and your mm -hmm. authors and all that and this is a wax museum curator and obviously i mean when it comes to museums uh, there's nothing lower uh, artistically aesthetically than a wax museum right it's it's the nadir of museums right <laughs> Yeah, obviously. aesthetic. I mean, uh, I'm thinking in well, just down the road from us, Niagara Falls. Uh, you got Las Vegas. You got, I think, Blackpool in the UK has well, like a tacky. They have, uh, they have um, a Madame Tussauds, and in, in um, England they have one, of course. They have one in Berlin. A year and a half ago, we were in London. And it's not like we were clamoring to descend on Madame Tussauds. Yeah, I mean, it just seems so just awful. Even to call it a museum is a stretch. It should be called a wax showcase. Yes, <laughs> it's really it's, all wax museums are, are places for tourists to come and drop their uh, their shekels. There's nothing culturally valid about a wax museum. <laughs> However, there is there is something culturally valid about Andre de Toth's House of Wax from I believe 1953, starring Vincent Price, which this film is somewhat of a retelling of or an updated version of. Uh, also, the Ray Milland star uh, Terror in the Wax Museum from I yep. believe. Have you seen that? I've seen half of it. I think it's from 1974, and it features, like this one does, a very unconvincing Jack the Ripper. Although, as we know from the tour, you know, no one really knows what he looked like apart from the top hat. But it was such a silly, silly display. It was something right out of The Simpsons, you know? Oh, saucy Jack. Yeah, a naughty one for sure. It's it's so funny. I mean, the you, you got this curator of this wax museum, and there's something about things that are almost human that is so terrifying. We podcasted Tourist Trap as well, and those are mannequins. And then obviously Joe Spinell in, um, you know, in, in Maniac, where he's yeah, talking yeah. To, mania to mannequins. There's something about something that is almost lifelike. And in the case here, it's, it is life, although it's that weird transition point between something that's made to look not lifelike and this is the curator's aim at human perfection in a weird kind of way it, the, the, that was that was pretty i mean that's par for the course in the wax museum genre where you have people who are in a suspended state almost dead almost alive turning into wax it's such a bizarre conceit it's such a bizarre subgenre it's, it's bizarre like, how could you generate so many films out of something that's such a an afterthought really well, there's something very terrifying about it i mean you know like as you said before these these people they don't look quite alive they don't look quite dead they look it's almost like they're in this weird state of suspended animation and there is something innately terrifying speaking of terrifying i'll just uh go on a little tangent here and talk to you about uh six-year-old me when i was about six i was taken to see a matinee in the cinema now this in the early 80s and 3d was experiencing a boom a resuscitation there was of course friday 13th uh, part three uh in 3d there was uh jaws part three in 3d all the part threes were being made in 3d there was i believe no it was amityville three in 3d i believe it was yeah yeah and there was a film called The Man Who Wasn't There that my father took me to that was in 3D, which I loved. A lot of these 3D films that were coming out in the early 80s, coming at you, whatever, they were not for kids. But I love 3D, and I still do to this day. So my father decided to take me to a matinee, and it was at a rep theater, and they were playing the 1953 version of Vincent Price's House of Wax. And of course, this is before I fell in love with Vincent Price, but never mind, I didn't even see Vincent Price's face on the screen. We walked in a bit late, maybe about five, ten minutes into the showing, 
and it was a scene when the wax museum was burning down and I'm looking at all these uh, and I walk in and I'm just assaulted by these images of all these wax figures melting, oozing like a candle on their, their, their features, just becoming more and more distorted and puddle-like and disgusting. And I let out a scream, Chris, in that theater. <laughs> and, and then I ran out and my father ran after me and I said, I'm not going back in there. I'm not going back in there. I'm not going back in there. And he actually got a refund. So that was the very first time I'd ever run out of a theater in fright was the House of Wax in 19, the 1953's House of Wax playing in a repertory theater somewhere downtown Toronto in 1983. And as a footnote, the man who wasn't there was also the story of you and your father. Yes, yes. <laughs> we won't get that personal on this podcast. This is not Oprah. It's not, no, not, you're not going to make me cry, Chris. It's not Brother Walters. <laughs> That is amazing, though. It's just the, the power of these, uh, of an effort from that year to just scare. It's the films that scare the bejesus out of you that are the most atypical films. It's far and away those types of efforts and, and not the likes of Maniac and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's definitely those little ones that Wizard of Oz has scared enough kids with, the, you know, and I mean, you just never know. And of course, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the, the one with Gene Wilder. Ooh, yes. But the one that scared you was Murder by Decree. Yeah, so it wasn't even a horror film. So without yeah. sweating in bed under the cover, <laughs> so terrifying. I'll never forget it. So getting back to the plot of this one. Yeah, a, a wonderful prologue with a couple being murdered. And the, and there's this is referenced later in one of, in the fabulous... Uh, newspaper uh, you know exposition of uh, il mano di ferro which is a, a hand of iron so it's a man with a metal claw and he you know murders a, a man and a woman and it's witnessed by a young girl who who comes to play a, a, a part uh, yeah. later obviously and this is a uh, sonia played by you know genre stalwart um, you know romina mondello and she, she's, you know, just she's, she's hiding under the bed she's gorgeous and, oh she's yeah she's just stunning, stunning. Just, Perfect. Fast forward, and she's a fashion student who's uh, who's bringing a portfolio. This is so weird. It's so <laughs> so Italian, particularly Italian. It's so ridiculous that she brings a portfolio to work in the wax museum. And I don't know what it is about her background that would make her a good fit. I guess maybe she can uh, make her want to work in a wax museum. Yeah, she can dress mannequins. I don't know, but mm -hmm. yeah, we should also say that this is Belle Epoque Paris that this is supposed to be. So this is a, a period piece. And so that adds to the sense of wonder you, you get, because this would have been entirely different had they set this in present day Paris or Rome. It oh, just would have failed miserably. So it takes you into another time and place. That's for sure. Yeah. And then I mean, basically, the plot is the plot. I mean, for those with any familiarity with any of the wax films, you know that the proprietor of the wax museum is up to no good, is up to some shenanigans. In this case, it's a gentleman by the name of Boris Volko. Yes, who cuts a, a bit of an Alex Trebekian figure, I think. Yeah, I, I didn't see that, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you've all you've got. I mean, the the genre sort of uh, set pieces are here. You have to have like a giant cauldron of wax, which is you know you got to have candelabras. You have mirrors. You've got an elaborate sprawling mansion. You, know, you have, all to have uh, assistants that are uh, they are somewhat uh, scary and maybe not quite on the level. 
<laughs> oh yeah, that, that assistant is just terrific. He's just got you know this uh, incredible curly uh, white man's Jerry curl going on yeah, and yeah. <laughs> creepy beady little eyes is so great. Well, yeah, that's was film because in the original House of Wax again, um, and it's not the original. It was a film made with Lionel uh, Barrymore. No, it was it Lionel Atwill or Lionel Barrymore beforehand? I can't recall. One of the Lionels, but. In, the, in, in my House of Wax, uh, Vincent Price's House of Wax, the assistant was played by a very young and very mute Charles Bronson. Oh, wow. <laughs> One of his early film that. roles. Yeah. And, you know, as par for the course, uh, you know, there's various disappearances of some of the local uh, denizens. And this is pretty funny. Like, there's just an excuse, really, to pad, I think, the runtime, but to do it in a really in a really great way because, you have you know, there's nothing more vibrant than at the time. I guess it would have been uh, the uh, Moulin Rouge and this awful right. shit would have been happening at the time. And so what better way to, you know, reproduce that kind of uh, aesthetic with a, a brothel? Yes, indeed. And, and one, of the, one of the Johns ends up going missing and uh, they right. sort of joust with one another about how terrifying it would be to spend a night in this a wax museum. It's a bit like House on Haunted Hill, I guess, right? Except yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, monetary, or was there a monetary bet? I don't know. It was. It was actually twenty lira, and it was Luca who was a John, and he was betting a, a gentleman by the name of Giovanni. They were talking about spooky places, and they were saying that in this wax museum, it's purported to be haunted or terrifying or what have you. And I will bet you twenty lira that you can't spend the night there. And his. Uh, favorite lady of the evening was all encouraging because she's like, oh, well, you know how much you can money you could spend on me if you win that 20 lira. <laughs> yeah, you got 20 lira. Boy, that, that went far at the time, I guess. I guess so. Um, <laughs> whereas, uh, so uh, Luca goes into the wax museum to spend the night and let's just say he doesn't come out. Uh, no, and the I guess the figure inside this, you know, the, it, it slowly revealed that this figure is masked, as you'd expect. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. I guess he um, stuns his victims with some sort of syringe with them, some green goo, a la sort of you know, um, the animator or something. And, you know, you gotta love like a tube of green goo. Like this is so amazing. Thinking you never also, go wrong with green goo. No, I was or thinking green also, slime. Okay, no. Well, speaking of green goo and syringes, there's this uh, outbreak movie that. Uh, features a bunch of killer vultures, and I've been pressing you to podcast it, but we've never right. got to, to it. The Rage is that the one? The talking Rage, about? yeah, that's an incredibly yeah. fun one. And on the cover, on the, there's actually a la Herbert West. There's actually a, a syringe full of green whatever goop to reference their Gwyneth Paltrow's company there. But <laughs> this is far more deadly. Well, there's an incredible um, Vic Morrow sci-fi film called The Green Slime, which I want to podcast with you one of these days. <laughs> Excellent. So yeah. much to cover. And, All about the green goo and the green slime. Oh, yeah. And we should also say uh, the mise-en-scene, it it's actually not the Seine, right? <laughs> that would be Paris. But this is actually Rome. And they pass it off as Paris, but they really don't care. It's an otherworldly Italian set piece. But mm -hmm. I've, I've only been in Rome for an hour. I sat in the train station. I have no clue what it's like. But, wow, like there's this incredible... Just, it's just such a decaying, ancient, whoa, my TV keeps turning on, sorry. You got a poltergeist. Yeah, it's really alarming. <laughs> yeah, so. Air here. 
<laughs> my smart TV is uh, becoming you know smart, smarter and smarter. It's like a singularity. It's gonna it's either it's becoming smarter or more stupid, one or the yeah. other. <laughs> yeah, it's relative. It's making me look stupid. But yeah, I just did like Rome is so incredible. It's just so antiquated, antediluvian, old, really like really shabby, but also really stunning. And you see these streetscapes, and you've got this ridiculous journalist who's just so fantastic, and he starts investigating the murders and he's so unscrupulous and so great and uh, i believe his name is andrea and he is right uh, i think also a denizen of the brothel but he also starts tailing sonia because she works in the in the wax museum and that's obviously the place where the deceased was supposedly his last known whereabouts so yeah it stopped his heart and oh but he was again way too young for this to really have been the case it reminds right. me a little bit of uh uh, Fulci's a city of the living dead, right? Because you have that same conceit where the inspectors come and this man was frightened to death and they got the psychic and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's just, I love that idea of someone being uh, scared to death. It's just so great. For sure. So is this a part of the podcast we talk about what we learned? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Uh, another Fulci touch here because in, you see it in the beyond, you see it in various of his films is the blind aspect of this. So almost in every Every Fulci film is either a mirror or right. some line. So there's an aunt who in, who talks to the journalist. Sonia's aunt who ta who takes her in after. Spoiler alert: the girl that whose parents got killed at the beginning of the movie were sent with Sonia's parents, and Sonia was hiding in the bed under the bed the whole time. Yeah, she's taken in by her kindly blind aunt. And of course, I mean, just the incredible uh, scene from the Beyond with the blind soothsayer and her German shepherd, which one is got to be one of the most iconic set pieces in all of horror right oh for sure i mean that's that's just so your horror for sure yeah oh yeah and then you got to have like the melting visage you know which you see in zombie 2 so i mean the little little touchstones that the fulci-esque elements of this film even though again he was beset by diabetes and infirm and quite elderly at this point so who knows how much uh, of his input actually made it into the final product well, Stivaletti, I mean, he worked with Fulci, so I mean, he he knew the man's touches, and he, um, you know, he, I guess, he makes sure to insert quite a few of of the of the maestro's touches in his, in his own film. Uh, another thing I've learned was that uh, they, again, this is a trashy film, but they insert this highbrow culture into it. So there's some uh, in the brothel, everyone's singing uh, Verdi, like La Donna Mobile, La Donna Mobile, Pio Malvento, that kind of thing. It's like so ridiculous. Like, that's what I love about this. This is the eternal city of Rome. So you have, it's just so imbued with culture. And then this curator of this museum fancies himself a perfectionist an artist uh, who is applying his craft almost like he's a Renaissance painter, and he just he's he's treating it with such, you know, he he's a skillful artist. And then you have this lowbrow crap in the background where this rutting pig, you know, uh, John's in this brothel, and then you have the curator of the museum who's also a voyeuristic pervert. You have these scenes of S and M. And uh, I, can't, I can't remember which character, but they get mounted and they get uh, whipped by this dominatrix. <laughs> it's so it's such a like a jarring juxtaposition of high and low culture. And you got to love that. It's just so, yeah. so much fun. And uh, there's a terrific shot where they uh, I guess the journalist scales a fence to get into the wax museum and poke around. And it's just so well done. Like You see his feet slide down 
the the fence and it almost reminded me of that uh what was it hell hell house what was it that we podcast uh, linda blair with linda blair yeah it's that kind House. of fence mm-hmm. uh and it just you see his feet and then the rest of them just emerge after and it's little tiny touches uh, and there's a, a great scene also with these various colored canisters that are in the basement of this uh, curator and it's almost like e vampiri or like the brain that wouldn't die. You see these, uh, you know, these these tubes, and they're filled with this bubbling liquid. And he's got this like steampunk lab in the in the basement, and he's got all these levers that do all these different things. And he, he you know, uh, kidnaps his victims who are again knocked out cold with this weird, mysterious serum out of green, and they wake up topless in his basement. And that's where you get to see all these like gorgeous women. So yeah, it just and he. I guess converts them into these wax uh, masterpieces down in this wax. basement. And, just... and, and it should be noted that everything, all the exhibits in the wax museum depict some sort of grotesquerie, be it Medusa holding up the severed head of her victim, be it, of course, Jack the Ripper, be it so he even uh, goes so far as to recreate uh, the scene of Anna's parents' murder. Ooh, yeah, that, that's getting uh, very, very meta right there. Uh, that was a little touch there, too, because it's not entirely, I guess, obvious from the opening prologue that it was... Oh, well, I'm sorry. I said Anna. I meant Sonia. My mistake. Uh, yeah, and this one, I got to say, I also didn't see the uh, Severin Blu-ray. I just I, I picked up Shudder because it's actually, you know, quite a bit superior to uh, to the, you know, tedious, uh, tepid offerings on Netflix. I saw it through there. Shout out to Shudder. Shout out, shout out to them, to Severin as well, uh, because I, I think what I've read is that this has a lot more... Uh, a lot more richness of tone in the, uh, you know, the, since the uh, compared with the original. And my Toshiba TV really let me down, I got to say. So it would have been nice to have seen that, uh, you know, uh, the much more rich and, uh, purples and, and pinks that you get from, uh, you know, Argento in this. And I didn't quite pick that up with, you know, thanks to the technology letting me down. Oh, what, what did you learn? Well, it's, it's not so much what I learned, but just more reminiscing. I mean, the only color that mattered to me was red. And when I say red, I mean blood red and this film has so much of it when i you know i'm talking about the lopped uh, appendages the hands i'm talking about the 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 hearts being ripped out of the chest cavities i'm talking about all of all the uh sanguinity in this film and again i just can't tell you how incredible it was to be somebody getting into this genre and having these 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 lurid euro horror films beamed into your living room every night at 12 midnight uncut which, for some reason, I don't know why, but they they cut Suspiria. I remember when I was so excited when they were about to air Suspiria, and they cut it to ribbons. I was like, this is supposed to be the scariest movie of all time, because the first 20 minutes, the heralded 20 minutes, were cut to about 10. But other than that, I mean, every film, and it got to the point where I was going in the TV guide, and with, with just chomping at the bit as to what is showcase going to be playing tonight, what Euro Horror goodness am I in store for? And when they re-aired The Wax Mask, I taped it, and I've made sure to watch it again and again and again. So, again, we've talked about this before, but it's just lost to the ages, like the discovery on network TV of these wonderful films that end up stamping this indelible impression in your brain that will never, ever go away. And that's what discovering the, uh, the yeah the wax mask was for me. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to see it on Blu-ray. I never have, but yeah, to me, there's only one color that matters in this film, and that's blood, blood, red. 
It's funny. I can't think of any. I mean, you, the the portal to Euro horror is such a funny one because it introduces you to so much beyond just style, but also plot too. To the extent any of them have a plot, uh, like I can't think of a single American film feature featuring any, let's broadly speaking, artist. Whereas you know, you got like the bird with the crystal plumage. Sorry, my TV keeps coming on. Sorry. <laughs> you gotta uh, call Zelda Rubenstein. <laughs> I was thinking also, uh, you know, Tenebrae and uh, geez, oh, Tenebrae was it. another film that showcased air that, that also blew my mind as well. And there's one, I mean, it's it's I mean, we've podcasted like 300 films, so it escapes me. There was another one with a uh, you know, with a fashion designer and you know, uh, on in his lavish estate, and you know, there's a series of murders as Jacques. Oh man, Bloody Orchids, or am I um. Yes, that's it. Seven, uh, seven bloody orchids, and seven then you also have obviously uh, Argento's opera. So you have all these films with uh, varying degrees of uh, artists, uh, broadly speaking, whether it's authors or opera singers or painters or designers. And it's so funny. It just shows like the cultural importance. Uh, let's say the aesthetic of beauty is to a place like Italy, and I can't like neither of us can name a single film that features an artist. Uh, of any sort in an American horror film. I mean, maybe no. one come to us, but... Yeah, well, I, it was uh, Call Me Blood Red by Herschel Gordon-Lewis, but that's uh, definitely going way back. <laughs> oh, oh, authors for sure. I guess there's tons of author films. But well, Call Me Blood Red was a painter, so... Okay, yeah. His, his paintings in blood. Yeah, and, and ter obviously there would have been, I mean, uh, your... Shinings and whatever for the writers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and yeah, your shinings, your sinisters or whatever, but a painter, like, forget about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what? Uh, it's just, it's some, it that's just part of the also sense of place. So it takes you out of, uh, out of what you're familiar with, an entirely different milieu, an entirely different set of uh, cultural understanding. And... Uh, yeah, and it just adds to the just the complete mystique, and obviously Suspiria with the ballet, and it's just totally, totally different time and place, and that's mm -hmm. what's magical when you're. I think uh, it's fair to say that Suspiria was the gateway drug to uh, to for a lot of uh, horror heads on this on these shores when it comes to investigating all things uh, Italian. That's for sure. Oh, for sure, for sure. So, star rating for uh, for Wax Mask. Wow, um, so funny. I mean, you—you—it's foreshadowed, and you're, you there's a set of expectations that come from the wax, the wax museum conceit. So you know what's coming, but you also don't mind that you know where you're going to be taken. Exactly. Uh, you know the destination, so you just want to sit back and enjoy the journey, basically. Oh yeah. And so this is obviously maybe some sort of, um, you know, stew of hammer horror mixed with Phantom of the Opera with a, a small pinch of reanimator mixed mm -hmm. with uh, God knows what, like, you know, I, I don't even know, I, you know, with the, the, the Vincent Price, uh, de Toth, uh, House of Wax, For sure. uh, you know, obviously Frankenstein and the Frankenstein monster and all those types of films, but as was par for the course, um, the Italians made it their own somehow by adding just enough weirdness and gore and set pieces to make it an original effort in a way. Okay. Uh, star rating. Star rating. Well, uh, <laughs> oh, it's, it's just so colorful and so uh, just uh, just over the top and and just so full of vibrant color. Uh, three and three quarters for me. Yeah, no, it's a, first of all, I agree with everything you said 100% um, in terms of how the Italians just take something and just make it their own. Um, I would have, 
if you would have asked me before I revisited this for the show, what I would give this film, I would say, oh, four stars all the way. But rewatching it this time around, um, it's probably been a dozen years since my last viewing. There were some pacing issues. It was, it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm going to lower my four star uh, initial um, estimation to three and three quarters as well. But a wholehearted recommendation. And like I said, I mean, for, for sentimental value, this is five stars because this was my gateway into Euro Horror. Thank you, Showcase. Whoever programmed this film to air that midnight in whenever, I don't know what year it was, you made a Euro Horror fan out of me, and I can't thank you enough. Yeah, and if you knock off a star and a, and a quarter, maybe for the uh, Terminator esque, uh, you know, uh, skull reveal at the end. Well, <laughs> I really like the, uh, the mechanical hands. As well, like some, uh, some really corny CG. I guess I was part for the chorus at the time. But I really like the mechanical hand. Oh, yeah. That, you can't go wrong with the mechanical hand. It's almost like someone else is, is there, right? I don't know. <laughs> I think my, my son is, like, flickering the uh, the door stop. And it's okay. ex extremely annoying. So I think oh. <laughs> that, at that point, I think it's uh, probably a good time to uh, draw this to a close. It's going to be really interesting also as uh, you're much more of a maestri maestro italian master completist than i am oh, so thank you, I'm, sir. Just, thank you. I'm just getting into uh the, i've maybe only seen five or six bava films and you've got it covered when it comes to m many of the obscure uh, argento and uh fulci efforts like uh, all the genre hopping ones especially so i'm excited to get into more of those and to see how his uh, style evolved and that's what's so amazing about fulci was he was able to just dive in and out of different genres and do it with such oh. a like I've not even seen any of his sex films or anything like or whatever like body. You got to see his um, gangster film Contraband. You got to see his spaghetti western for the apocalypse. I mean, these are just incredible films. We'll get to them one of these days. Yeah, can't wait. Yeah, there's just so much to talk about. There's so many like you know layers of onions to re reveal here. So as we. Excellent. And uh, so uh, continue to enjoy the podcast. We hope you enjoy. Uh, thanks to everyone who's already purchased our book, Mine's Bigger Than Yours, The 100 Wackiest Action Films. Uh, that's going to come out in September. We're really excited about it. It's really oh, fun. Uh, sh shout out to Brian Trenchard Smith, the uh, director of Stunt Rock and Day of the Panther and Strike of the Panther, Turkey Shoot, you name it. He wrote a very funny forward. And it's funny, he references the title of the book, which we realize we omitted from the entire proceedings. And Mine's Bigger Than Yours is from a particular standout action film. And you, if you're a fan of the genre, you'll probably know it. But his, his forward is great fun. And thanks to him for uh, helping us out on that one. We really appreciate uh, his help. Indeed, indeed. And he's, he's just a gentleman. I, I can't say anything bad about Brian Country Smith. The guy's a great filmmaker. And, I, and I'm proud to say he's now my friend through uh, through the uh, the writing of the forward. We developed a bit of a friendship. So when you yeah. can make, when you can become a friend with some of your cinematic idols, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. It's a great feeling. So, so we hope uh, our listeners uh, pick up a copy and enjoy the uh, book as much as uh, you know we did writing it. So that would be fantastic. And we will sure. talk to you soon. Take care.